Good evening and welcome to Ideas. I'm Lister Sinclair with the final programme in our five-part repeat series about the career of Ivan Illich. If anybody asks me, Ivan, what is it what you would most like to stimulate during the next year and a half of your life? It's in, in those kind of horizons that I've seen my life, I would say. I would like to get a certain number of people to think about what tools do to our perception rather than what we can do with them. To look at how tools shape our mind, how their use shapes our perception of reality, rather than how we shape reality by applying or using them. In other terms, the symbolic fallout of tools elevated to the sacramental tool structure of the world. Tools is a word to which Ivan Illich has always given his own peculiar twist. What Jacques Ellul calls technique, or George Grant technology, Illich describes by this simpler word. But he means something no less embracing than these other writers do. The tools we use, in Illich's view, shape both our image of the world and our image of ourselves. In the age of textual literacy, he believes, people imagine themselves as texts. Today, the computer is creating a new self in the image of a cybernetic system. I believe that during the mid-80s, for many people, for very many people, a change of the mental space in which we live has happened. Some kind of a catastrophic breakdown of one way of seeing things has led to the emergence of a different way of seeing things. Maurice Berman speaks about the cybernetic dream state into which people have gotten, in which people value. We are, in my opinion, at this moment passing over a watershed. And I had not expected in my lifetime to observe this passage. Tonight on Ideas, we'll explore Illich's thinking about this watershed. We'll consider his two most recent books, and we'll conclude with a look at Illich the man, through his own eyes and the eyes of his friends. To me, the greatest title of Illich's work is Celebration of Awareness. That really, really, Ivan's great gift is he celebrates that awareness that one can have by living in the present. Part Moon, Part Travelling Salesman, Conversations with Ivan Illich, is written and presented by David Cayley. It's based on conversations he recorded last year at Illich's house in State College, Pennsylvania, where Illich now teaches for part of the year at Penn State University. While I was visiting Ivan Illich, he told me a story about a young woman, a student of his, who had called on him the week before. They had taken a glass of cider together, and then he had offered her a second glass. Oh, no, she said. My sugar requirements are already met. I don't want to get into a sugar high. More recently, I heard a similar story from my wife about a mother she had overheard saying to her child during lunch, That's enough of the protein, dear. Now have some of the carbohydrates. Both of these people view themselves, or in the second case, their children, as systems with complex requirements. An offer of a glass of cider is not weighed as hospitality 
or even in terms of subjectively experienced needs. Was she still thirsty or not? Instead, it is evaluated in terms of that person's knowledge of their requirements. This is the essence of the transformation which Illich now sees society undergoing. Under the influence of cybernetic tools like the computer, he says, the root metaphors by which we grasp who we are are rapidly changing. During the 80s, this change has become one of the main themes of his writing. This is particularly the case in his 1987 book with Barry Sanders called ABC, The Alphabetization of the Popular Mind. But the theme of catastrophic change and loss was already evident in an earlier book called H2O and the Waters of Forgetfulness, published in 1985. In H2O, Illich wrote about what he called the historicity of stuff, and he reflected that the natural stuffs of our world, like water, might be losing their imaginative resonance for us. The process which led to his writing the book began at his home in Mexico with a phone call from Dallas. I was just sitting, over, puzzling out with my miserably limited Greek, some passages in, uh, in the sources when a telephone, the gardener called me to the other place where they have a telephone in Mexico, and I came there and there was a, somebody from Dallas asking me if I would come to talk. No, I don't want to come to talk to him. But what is it about? Well, we have a meeting on celebrating water. I said, what? I'm just sitting on waters of Lethe, Lethe. A river which washes away from the feet of the death their memories and carries them into a pond of mnemosyne, where poets can go occasionally in an altered state and pick them up and bring them back to sing them. So what, what do you want? Well, you know, there are a large number of Mexicans living in a certain area which is to be washed away to build a central city lake in Dallas. So I had them explain to me for a few minutes what we were doing. I said, yeah, who says A must say B. If I say Mnemosyne and Lethe and so on, let me say yes to Dallas. Illich studied Dallas's ambitious plans to turn recycled toilet flush into a brilliant display of fountains, waterfalls, and sparkling surfaces. He concluded that the waters of Dallas and the waters of forgetfulness were of two fundamentally different kinds. The industrial solvent with which Dallas hoped to beautify itself might be chemically H2O, he said, but it had lost its ability to mirror the water of dreams. The book which resulted from Illich's talk in Dallas was a sort of long, rambling letter to a friend, full of fascinating excursions into mythology, the history of bathrooms, our changing sense of smell, and many other subjects of current interest to the author. He subtitled it, Reflections on the Historicity of Stuff. Now, it is a Canadian, a Canadian whom I met in Kingston. I wished I could recover him, who he is, who, when I asked him at a faculty meeting, and what do you do, sir, he told me, I want to make stuff a subject of philosophy. I can't find who the man is, but I owe it to him. Since he said this to me, I've been thinking about it.
I said, I want to do the history of stuff. Because I do believe that in this world into which I see the young generation now moving, it is not only their voice they are losing by imagining themselves along the model of the computer, it is also that we are emerging as a generation rid of stuff. Now, water is one of the traditional four stuffs from which our Western universe is made. There are other universes in other bodies, world bodies, which are made of five or of seven elements. Ours is made of four. Water is one of them. In this little booklet, I wanted to raise the question about the historicity of stuff and the possibility of studying it. I tried to retrace the history of the stuff of water, the age-old distinction of the ambiguity of water, which is a surface and a depth, which can wash dirt off the skin by flowing, but just by touch can purify the depth of the soul, which is a totally different activity, washing and purifying gave me an exceptional opportunity to speak about a stuff which at this moment is escaping us socially. Other people worry about the human organism not finding anymore, sometimes in the middle of the next century, the appropriate kind of H2O to make it work. And I'm saying the deadness which sets in when people have lost the sense to imagine the substance of water, not its external appearances, but the substance of water. That deadness might be worse for those who live on than the disease which will set in, the AIDS analogues which will set in because there are too many organic phosphate residues or God knows what radiation-bearing elements in the goo which comes out of the tap. I'm speaking of the deadening of the imagination. Illich's fears about the deadening of the imagination remind me of a question Father Tom Barry once asked me. If we lived on the moon, he said, what would our imaginations be like? Could we imagine passion without fire, or purification without water? If we denature nature, I think Illich is saying, whether we do it through pollution or just through the intensity of our management, the result will be the same as if we did live on the moon. Two years after H2O was published, Illich followed it with another angle on a society passing through frightening changes. This time his subject was literacy, and the way in which a society's perceptual style is shaped by its knowledge tools. This book was rooted in his recognition of himself as, literally, a man of letters. A man with a papery soul, he told a conference in Toronto a couple of years ago. He traces the beginnings of this recognition to a conversation with his dear friend, the late American writer, Paul Goodman. As he once said to me, I have never written a line 
if I was not sure whether I either had said it or would say it as it's written. And that impressed me, of course, because I've never written a line which I have the feeling I could have said. And people don't notice the difference between my speaking and my writing because they aren't aware how much, given my destiny, I'm obligated while speaking to read off internal lines. Mm -hmm. This conversation with Goodman was a, one of the reasons why later I got so much concerned about the impact of literacy on the mode of being of our Western culture. Right. Illich's book ABC was the result of this concern. Co-written with Barry Sanders, a professor at Pitzer College in Claremont, California, the book describes three watersheds in the history of literacy, beginning with the invention of the technology which Illich believes made philosophy possible, the alphabet. Most of the concepts with which our modern with our philosophy is constructed are based on the existence of this technology. We couldn't have them unless we had this technology. In order to imagine yesterday's sentence still present, which is fundamental for Greek thought, I must imagine yesterday's sentence recorded somewhere so that it can be resurrected. The winged word, the bird which has passed, has been somewhere put on a skewer. That also changes the idea of memory. Memory is a tablet on which something is written. It's a storeroom where these dead birds are stored and can be picked out again. It is not remembrance, which Plato still knew. Kind of the smell that something like that has already been in my heart. I follow the trail of it, go to the river of remembrance, try out driftwood, find a piece which does fit, more or less in the space which was left empty by what I feel has been there, know exactly that it's not the same, but treat it as if it were the same. This is my version of Plato speaking about remembrance as opposed to memory. Thought requires the technology interiorized of writing. Even if I don't know how to write, I know that some people can write and that's the way how, do, how they do it. Memory requires it. Rhetoric. Rhetoric is planning out and storing somewhere in my memory palace, in my interior space, the sentences which I'll use under certain circumstances where I can go to grab them and fit them into my discourse. Having described the transition from epic orality to alphabetic literacy in ancient Greece, the period when, in Eric Havelock's wonderful phrase, the muse learned to write, Illich and Sanders then jump to a period when literacy was, in a sense, reinvented, 12th century Europe. Before the early 12th century, reading in Europe had been predominantly monkish reading, teasing words out of a continuous line of unseparated letters by sounding them out, reading, as one monk said, for savor, not for science. Literacy didn't touch most of the people at all. Then, over the course of a couple of generations, a recognizable ancestor of our modern book appeared, 
and the nature of reading changed dramatically. Illich examined the reading of a monk who stood precisely on the cusp between these two styles, Hugh of St. Victor, the master of a monastery just outside 12th century Paris. Hugh of St. Victor wrote a book which is called Didascalicon. Really, it means a teaching tool with the subtitle De Studio Legendi. Study today mm-hmm. means what your kids have to do when they come home from school. If you look it up in the Oxford Dictionary, it still means commitment, engagement, mm-hmm. effort. And the effort of reading, let me translate it for the moment. And instead of interpreting this very well-known 12th century text, as others have done, as an introduction to the corpus of four years' curriculum in the pre-university cloister. Hugh mentions a lot of titles whom one should read and in which order one should read them. I went to analyze this book with two questions only in mind. What can I read out of this book which would tell me what Hugh actually did when he engaged in an activity which he calls reading? What did he materially do? What did he psychologically do? Not what did he read, but what did he do in his own mind when he read? First question. And second question, what meaning did he give to the things which he did when he read? This led me into a careful analysis, paleographically, of what a page looks like around 1120 and what it looks like around 1150, ten years after Hugh's death. The appearance of the two pages was radically different. During this time, word breaks, which had been known in Europe for 400 years, became universal. Unseparated words had to be read aloud, as anyone can ascertain by typing a line of continuous words and trying to read them silently. Now, silent reading became possible. Paragraphs, titles, footnotes, quotation marks, and tables of contents all appeared. And there were other changes as well. The alphabetic index is invented. The alphabet, strangely enough, since Phoenician times has the same, same secret, alphabeta gamma, A, B, C, aleph, bet, gimel. But nobody, for 2,000 years of existence of the alphabet, has had used this feature of the alphabet, of an ordered fixed sequence, to order concepts. During the 12th century, with a first slight attempt during the 11th, the idea appears to order concepts alphabetically, to put the lion and the lizard in a book on animals next to each other. Well, even in the 13th century, still, Albert the Great excuses himself with his, teach- with his readers. It is a highly non-intellectual way of putting things together. The lion should go with the ferocious animals, and the leopard, in that case, with the sweet ones, like the panther. But for practical reasons, he finds it very useful 
to put concepts in an alphabetic order. This again made it possible to look up where subjects in a book are mentioned, or where biblical passages in a book are mentioned. The early 12th century knows the gloss. Holy Scripture has been commented upon by dozens and dozens of church fathers. So these monks in the, who create the Glossa Ordinaria, as it came to be known later on, this huge sequence of volumes, all the comments which the church fathers made to Genesis chapter 1, verse 17, who said what about this verse over a thousand years? And the only way to look up the past was by following the order of Scripture. Now suddenly, even more importantly, in the 12th century, late 12th century, the book is not a commentary of, on some old text, which perhaps overwhelms that old text, but it is the projection of an order in my mind onto the page where the order of my mind becomes visible. Silent reading becomes the norm. Reading becomes an activity where the letters through my eyes speak to my mind, rather where the letters through my eye activate the mouth, which makes me hear what I say. When I read Hugh, I'm still in the old world. When Hugh speaks about the page, he still remembers that pagina means a vineyard, or more precisely, the espalier in a vineyard which he walks along. He still picks and tastes words, like berries. He still sucks words from the page. It's an oral activity, literally with the mouth, with his lips. He still walks through the pages. Reading for him is not accumulation. Reading for him is a pilgrimage towards regions ever lighter towards the light, into the light, until the light becomes so strong that he doesn't go on reading, but begins to contemplate. That becomes totally different by the end of the century. Scholasticism would be impossible without Thomas Aquinas having recovered, he belongs to the first generation who has recovered the art of making notes in cursive writing. We have uh, note, uh, lecture notes of St. Thomas in his own handwriting. Nobody could decipher them. It was a new invention. Illich believes that these changes, taken together, transformed European society. The book ceased to be purely an object of devotion and became a powerful tool. And this new tool was the source of a new conception of the self. The idea was that I can project my mind onto a pergamon, and by the end of the century it's already paper, that the page could be a mirror of what's in me. You already is the first who speaks about mirroring oneself in the page. He stands exactly at that point of transition. Therefore, the self can be conceived.
in the new way. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> There's an interior text. Examination of conscience becomes possible as a reading in the text which is on the inside. The peasant can't go into the church without passing beneath the tympanon of the late 12th century, that hollow above the church door, where the last judgment is sculpted, with the judge sitting there, deciphering from a book the accounts. People know that in the abbey there are account books. Even if they themselves can't keep accounts, it is not their remembrance of what they owe, but the debt written down somewhere. The devil stands next to everybody noting down what he does, says, and thinks to transfer it into the eternal account book. Torture comes up, not punishment, but what in modern times we call torture. The attempt to find out the truth by reading into the heart of people. And it's explained in this way by the 13th century. The relationship between person and community is perceived of in the terms of a text. I can act in context. Mm -hmm. The oath which remained in popular culture, the ultimate empowerment of a man's word, when a man grabs his testicles or a woman grabs her hair and wishes, curses, herself or himself conditionally, if it is not as I say, and invokes horrible divine punishment on himself and his oath helpers, is replaced by a piece of paper you can hold in your hand. Possession, which is something which you do with your behind, sitting, by which land is possessed, earns into property, which you hold in your hand as a writ changes which I myself learned from McLuhan to notice, but which McLuhan wrongly ascribed to print culture, appear much earlier without the technology of printing on the manuscript page of the late 12th century, at that moment of the emergence of the new individual. One of the most interesting aspects of these changes is the way in which they engulf the literate and the illiterate alike. People's mindsets changed, Illich believes, whether they could read or not. This has led him to distinguish the actual skills of reading and writing, which were still relatively rare even in the 13th century, from what he calls lay literacy, the new literate mindset. This transformation from a oral public to a literate public happens without any increase in the percentage within the total population capable of using the pen. This is the reason why I speak of lay literacy. The impact of the alphabet and its use on the popular mind independent from the success of clerics to transmit the skill of pen-holding or spelling, spelling out. 
because reading is something which you can do through your own mouth or through somebody else's mouth, as in South America still today. Writing is something in which you distinguish carefully between scribing, which some technician does, and dictating, which a ruler can do without ever having held a pen. Mm -hmm. He's a dictator. But also a peasant, when he goes, employs a notary and dictates to him. And the notary can betray the peasant as much as he can betray the ruler. With the concept of lay literacy, Illich is saying something about our situation today, as well as about the Middle Ages. He's suggesting that the changes sweeping our world will affect us whether or not we can use the new cybernetic tools of the late 20th century. Today, he says, the word processor, he calls it for emphasis the text composer, is changing minds just as surely as the transformed page of the 12th century changed minds. I'm afraid for the text of the 12th century, the mirror of Aquinas' thought projected onto a paper covered with his scribbles from which he will give his lectures, lectures of a completely new kind, out of which the Summa Theologica came. I say that and see that this perception of the page as a mirror of a mind is now being eaten up. The age of the mirror of the soul is being eaten up by the text composer. I don't want to speak in terms of the future, but in terms of the dazed look which I see on the face of students who tell me, Dr. Illich, what data do you have? Couldn't you tell me about the program which you are following? How did you plan out your approach? What is it what you want to communicate to me? I then feel that I'm drowning with an hour which is past. The difference between St. Thomas's scribbles and the fluorescent text which appears on the screen of the word processor may seem too slight to justify Illich's alarm, but he claims that it goes to the heart of how we view the interior text we call the self. And he believes that there is a noticeable difference between a text which is still the mirror of a mind and a text composed on a computer. I can recognize so far every book which was composed on a computer. Truly? Yes. I remember the first time it happened to me, Hofstadter's Gülleischer Bach. I got that book. I, I was fascinated by it and it was given to me by somebody in Berlin in, 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 in 81 who had been enthusiastic about it. I couldn't get it. I couldn't get into it. And I asked myself, what is this? I just heard of a text composer. I said to myself, that must be written that way. Dragging out paragraphs which didn't come out of an inner flow. Individually they came, but they are like saying, I can reorganize the river by taking a piece from here and putting it somewhere else if it fits. And when I then read the introduction, I saw that the guy was proud and grateful to the computer of having helped him to write the book. Even today I can discover it, and I made a vow, just as I made a vow not to buy a daily newspaper 20 years ago and have kept to it, I've made a vow I will not type into a computer 
any sequence of sentences which I haven't first written out with a much newer invention than the computer, the felt tip pen, which is so soft that you can write even on a moving Mexican bus with it. Illich's fundamental concern with the computer is not with its products, and his case against it wouldn't be touched if he failed to make good on his claim to be able infallibly to recognize these products. What he's really drawing attention to is the computer's symbolic fallout, the language of programming which we increasingly apply to ourselves, the computer as metaphor for self-perception. He's concerned that words have ceased to have a fundamental and irreducible integrity and become instead the plastic elements of a communication code. And he remembers the first time he became aware that this was happening. It was in Chicago, must have been 20 years ago, at a meeting with, uh, at the University of Chicago with social science people. And there was a young guy, well, he's pretty well known by now, as one of the American Marxists who gave a kind of respectability to Marxist analysis. In fact, I respect what that guy has done in the meantime. But there he sits and says, Illich, don't kid yourself. I don't read you. You don't communicate with me. I don't get your message. My immediate answer was, sir, I have no intention to be a transmitter. I thought that he was offending me by identifying me <laughs> before a radio station. Only later on, a minute later, I realized that he was had just probably re seen his department renamed from English Department of Communications. Now, I told this story at a seminar at the University of Freiburg, where there was a strange composition, 15 to 20 men my age, and 20 or 30 people, definitely university students. The middle range was missing. None of the younger people could understand what I was saying. They took it for granted that we, need, that we are transmitting information to each other. While a quarter of the older people, each in one way or another, remembered how much they had been struck when for the first time somebody imputed to them to be comparable to a computer or a system. Illich claims that our age has adopted a radically new style of knowledge, discontinuous with even the recent past. As a reader of his, I've been puzzling for some time about whether he's right. Is our break with the past really as deep, as complete, as catastrophic as he contends? I brought up this question in conversation with Illich's close friend, John McKnight, of the Center for Urban Affairs at Northwestern University in Chicago. His reply was that he feels his own experience and understanding closely parallel Illich's. I now have seminars with students, none of whom I think has ever experienced citizenship in their upper middle class. They are, their lives are 20 years of consumption. And their lives are also almost totally derived from symbols, and that's what seems to me to be the 
essence of what the computer world provides. It's a way of associating with an environment where there is no kiss, there is no hand held, there is no great idea generated in the dialogue between two people, there is no creativity of a human forum, there is no leaf, there is only a graphic of a leaf. So I think that what the computer does is it announces the end of experience and provides an alternative to life. It is the ultimately unconvivial tool because it asks us to move out of our environment with God's earth and God's people and into a symbolic set of understandings, inputs, outputs, the video, the record, the television, the computer. The word that one has to use is derivative. People whose life is derivative of the products of, is a derivative of the products of systems and who themselves and with their neighbors are almost devoid of deep opportunities for relationship, creativity, the vernacular, the democratic. That's happening so quickly, I could never have believed it. Some of John McKnight's phrases, like the end of experience or an alternative to life, have, for me, a pretty chilling quality. Illich has much the same effect on me when he envisions a future society of cyborgs, a science fiction term meaning cybernetic organisms, which he finds apt for people like the students who ask him what program he is following. Both men are obviously deeply troubled and surprised by what they have seen in the last few years. And yet neither, I think, has despaired, and neither could. Certainly for Illich, Hope is not something that could be extinguished by the growing darkness around him. Hope, rather, is the fundamental condition of his life. Once he tried to define hope by contrasting it with expectation in a wonderful essay called The Rebirth of Epimethean Man, which concludes his book, Deschooling Society. Expectation, he said, means reliance on results which we predict, plan, and control. Hope centers desire on a person from whom we await a gift. It depends on trusting faith in the goodness of nature. Hope which awaits a gift rather than expects one is a quality which Illich has lived. It has made him a surprising and trusting friend, and it has animated his work with the faith that we don't need the institutional intermediaries we put between ourselves and reality. He has lived his life as a pilgrimage, rather than a planned career. And in the light of the intense honesty this has allowed him, he's been able to give his students, readers, and audiences a vivid sense of other times and finer possibilities than most of us are now living. And yet he himself has lived in the same world as we do, amidst word processors, jet planes, and cars, like the old banger now parked outside his house in State College. I do drive a car. I have for 17 years I was without one. I decided that's no good and that 
with without one. When I accepted to work in university, what is it called here? Uh, university Park. State. Penn State University. I don't even remember what the place is <laughs> called after four years. Which is somewhere near nowhere and also distant <laughs> from the supermarket. I couldn't do anything else but tell Lee Hoynatsky, please get me a cheap and good car in Kentucky. We are particularly cheap there and drive it over here. I know that in order to conduct that meeting on water in near Assisi for Wolfgang Sachs next week, I will consume as much oxygen as a herd of 20 elephants will consume in the entire life and not produce the ship elephants produce, from which again oxygen can be generated, in order to be propelled, jetted to Assisi and three days later back. And yet I do it. I try to be austere and draw my lines. I have vowed to myself, I who couldn't live didn't dare, didn't want to go to Mexico without having the promise that the New York Times will be delivered by airmail every day. Twenty years ago, I decided to live, not to buy a daily newspaper. And I haven't done it. Doesn't mean that I don't pick up the newspaper left on the seat next to me while the other person in the airplane has gone to the toilet. <laughs> I feel a little <laughs> bit when I do do this, as if you peep. Yeah. I haven't looked at television. I have refused these interviews, but I say there's a point at which if you draw your own line, you can make your own exceptions. You can't find security in austerity. <laughs> Otherwise, you are really through. Illich has never tried to find security in austerity, in reputation, or by making a system of his published ideas nor has he ever offered security to others by trying to tell them how they should live. Even in his critical writings of the 70s, there's little in the way of a positive political program. Instead, says John McKnight, he's tried to clear away the obstacles that stand in the way of people deciding for themselves what they should do. I remember when we were working closely together in this question of medicine, health, and community. Uh, I had a tendency to uh, talk about um, remedies and solutions. And he would say to me, but I don't want to deal in prescriptions. I want to deal in proscriptions. I don't want to tell people what they ought to do. I want to lay out the errors throughout all of the efforts that he was associated with that might have been thought of as reform, I don't think he was ever willing to go beyond reforms that were proscriptive. From the beginning, he didn't want to describe a good school. And if you believe in the creativity and adaptability of primary groups in the society, then what you have to do, it seems to me, is to say, how can we give this social space, the room to act and be powerful, not to say what it ought to do. Nor, and I think this is the even more difficult thing to come to, 
which I have come to <laughs> and he's come to, nor probably can you say to big systems, here's what you ought to do to help primary vernacular life along. I think Yvonne would say today, if you want my advice, get out of the way. John McKnight sees Illich's conscientious refusal to prescribe for others as an expression of his confidence in people, a confidence which seems to me at its root deeply Christian. For Illich, as a Christian, Jesus has already revealed the way. It doesn't need to be revealed again. All that's necessary is the unmasking of systems which claim they can ensure our salvation, whether they be churches or schools. Because to Illich, our salvation can never be insured, only encountered right now in the person of another. Lee Hoynatsky is an old friend of Illich's and the editor of a number of his books. He describes Illich's writings as a new way of doing theology. What he's trying to do is to say something which Chesterton said years ago. Chesterton said, there is no supernatural. That's crazy. There's only one. There's one reality. And you don't get to a certain point and cross and then become, get into the supernatural realm. In a sense, Illich, I think, is saying that. There aren't two realities, the natural and the supernatural. There's only one reality. And what he then tries to do is to write in such a way that what he says includes both these realities. So it's a, what I would call a new way of doing theology. You can look at any list which informed people would put out today of, say, the ten, top 10 theologians of the world, top 20, top 50. And I suspect that unless you get some really maverick-type compiler, no one of those lists will ever include Ivan Illich. But I'd put him up there. That's where I'd put him, see, because I think what, he, what he's doing is a, is a different kind of theology. But listen to this. This is from the lectures at McCormick Seminary in 1987. Mm -hmm. But listen carefully, he says. I do not speak as a theologian, but as a historian. Mm -hmm. Now, he seems to be making a contrast there. He certainly is. Uh, right. Because you can't say these things as a theologian. In That's the why Roman I say, Catholic, well, listen to this. Yeah, this right. actually, in the in Roman, Roman Catholic, Catholic Church's tradition, more recent tradition, you right. imply teaching authority, right. which derives from the hierarchy right. when you claim to speak as a theologian. Right. All right. And that's what he will not claim. And that's why I say it's a new way of doing theology. You claim no authority, and so he's not going to produce some major tractatus, some treatise on the Trinity or on whatever it is. He's trying to find his own voice, and I think he's found it. He's not trying, he's found it. And his, he's, he's seen that his voice is this narrow voice, or this little voice, or this gentle voice, or this silent voice, or this, this hidden voice. People are after him now. What, what are you doing at Penn State University? What the hell, this is not, what are you doing? Why don't you go to uh, Chicago, or Berkeley, or, or uh, Tübingen, or someplace? No, and he comes to this out in the sticks someplace, and that's where he is. That's my interpretation of him. He's found his voice, and it's this, 
is silent-voiced. I have chosen the politics of impotence, bearing witness to my impotence, because I not only think that for this one guy there is nothing else left, but also because I could argue that at this moment it's the right thing to do. Politics almost inevitably today focus attention on intermediary goals and let not see you. What the things are to which we have to say no. Illich's passionate no prepares the way for each person to say his own yes in his own way. His work as a critic and historian is for me, finally, a form of iconoclasm, of image-breaking and ground-clearing. It prepares the mind for surprise, for silence, and for mystery. For mystery and for what in the Old Testamentary tradition we call the attempt of walking beneath his nose. In facie tua. I don't know the phrase. This is, uh, this is actually panai, a biblical panai, way of speaking. Panai, panai, speak beneath, beneath the, the nose. nose of God? Yeah, beneath the nose of God. I mean, God has a nose as big as mine, seemingly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is an attempt to accept with great sadness the fact of Western culture. Dawson has a passage where he says, the church is Europe and Europe is the church. And I say, yeah. Corruptio optimi quest pessima. We attempt to ensure, to guarantee, to regulate the revelation that at any moment we might recognize, even when we are Palestinians, that there is a Jew lying in the ditch whom I can take in my arms. Embrace him. To study, accept the West as the perversion of revelation and thereby become increasingly more tentative but also more curious, totally engaged in searching its, for its origin, which is the voice of him who speaks. It's as simple as that. It's childish if you want, childlike hopefully. You can't take the crucifixion away if you want to understand where we have arrived at. Uh, many people, I think, uh, might describe him as being uh, imperious and haughty uh, at times, many times. I have always uh, found him a comrade, solicitous, absolutely conscientious in his care and concern for me and uh, my well-being and those around me. He is a person whose capacity to be a friend is absolutely unequaled among everybody that I have ever known. And uh, every once in a while he'll say to me, if you ever need me, I will never be more than 24 hours from you. Just call. And he'd come.
got into this out of foolish trust, full-hearted trust, but I'll do it once. Never again, be sure. And instead of being a useful interviewee for you in the old way, which I thought I could be, I had a unique experience besides making a new friend. Laus Domine! You've been listening to the final program in our five-part series, Part Moon, Part Travelling Salesman, Conversations with Ivan Illich. The series was written and presented by David Cayley. Technical operations by Lon Tolk, production assistants Brian Hickey and Gail Brownell, producer Jill Eisen. Ivan Illich has given his permission to offer a printed transcript of this five-part series. You can get a copy by sending a check or money order for $7 to CBC Enterprises, Illich, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. And please be prepared to wait eight weeks for delivery. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. Thank you.